This morning we're in the book of Acts, chapter 8. The title of this morning's message is Persecuted to Preach. Although, as I was thinking about this sitting in the back, I thought of an alternate title, Loyalty Still. Because loyalty counts only under pressure. Who needs it when everything's going right? It's when you're challenged. And these Christians are challenged. They are persecuted, and yet they're going to remain loyal to the Lord, so much so they're going to invite others to come and join the persecution. They're going to go and spread the gospel. We're going to take verses 1 through 8, and would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word. If you're joining us online, why don't you stand also, if you can, if you're able to, as we take verses 1 through 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death at the time. A great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. and They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Please be seated. Just the beginning of an exciting chapter. Satan found in this Pharisee, Saul, who would later become the great Apostle Paul, one of the great champions of the Bible. And Saul, he was the son of a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, it was in his blood. But it was the blood of the Lamb that will prevail in his life. Satan found in this Saul what he hoped he could use to destroy Christianity while it was still in the cradle, those early years. And so there is this preaching of Stephen. They kill Stephen for telling them the truth about themselves and his exaltation of Christ, backed up by Scripture, their Scripture. And Satan launches this massive counterattack. Because like Mordecai, Stephen stood up in the face of those things that needed to be defied. Mordecai, when he stood up against Haman, who was this man that wanted to wipe out the Jewish people, wipe them off the face of the earth, God used Mordecai to provoke this, to come to a head, to get it out in the open and deal with it. And that's what happened. And Stephen is doing, being used by God to do the same thing. I think Mordecai is one of the unsung heroes of the Bible. I think many of us are not mindful of how great a man he was. And when he stood up against evil, there was this massive counterattack against he and the people of God, which they had to fight to prevail. In this eighth chapter, we'll read here Saul's persecuting the church. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. The Christians join in. 
Simon the magician becomes a believer in the next section, hopefully next next week. And then there's this Ethiopian uh, eunuch that gets saved. And it is just an exciting chapter of evangelism. Look now at verse 1 again. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Well, when it says, now Saul was consenting to his death, we have to go back and look at chapter 7 and verse 60 to keep it in context. And there we read about Stephen. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That fell asleep, of course, the euphemism for he died. And so when he cast his vote against Stephen, he sided against Jesus Christ. And it was personal. He was personally against Jesus Christ. Before I became a believer, I was personally against Jesus Christ. Not everyone is like that who has not come to the Lord. Some just are not mindful of that mindful, but there are many out there that it is personal. That's the work of Satan. Truth is cold when you don't like it. And Saul, he heard that sermon of Stephen, and the truth was cold to him. And he turned hot with rage and anger. The very first words that this Saul will hear from the mouth of Jesus Christ is, Why are you persecuting me? See, it was personal. Christ took it as personal. And even the person who doesn't articulate their rejection of Christ that way, still it's personal. There's no way of getting, there's no way of getting around it. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is after Christ has, has been crucified, risen, and ascended to heaven. You touch one of his people, you're touching him directly. That's how God takes it. That ends any debate or confusion about what persecution is about. Maybe some of you persecuted Christians before you became believers. God will soon use every bit of this man, Saul, against sin to exalt Christ. It's incredible. He works slowly and mysteriously, but he works. And we can't lose sight of that. Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Yeah, because God is in control. He is sovereign. Don't let that disturb you when he doesn't swoop down and take your problems away. He's still sovereign. He's still loving every bit of it. Just stay to the end. His reward is with him. Stay excited about heaven. You older Christians especially, stay excited about heaven. Don't let discouragement and disappointment and pain cake up on you to the point where you can't see the reward that awaits you. Christ's going to be excited to see you. He shall see the labor of his soul, and be satisfied. How hard is it to be satisfied and remain that way? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hell has no fury that God cannot use. Hell can get as mad as it, we can get as mad as hell. God still use it. That's why Paul said, we know all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Saul did not yet love God, was not yet called, 
But God knew where this was going. God knew that in this man there would be a portal for the Holy Spirit to enter into his heart and dwell there. Indirectly, at this time, Saul is spreading Christianity before he becomes a Christian because of his actions as a prosecutor. And he's going to ramp it up next chapter, still, still wreaking havoc or if you prefer the alternate pronunciation, still wrecking havoc. He's still at it. He's still burning, because that truth was cold to him, but it was truth nonetheless. Satan did not see any of this coming. He was really planning to wipe out the church. Paul will admit to that. We'll come to that in a little bit. Except the apostles. Well, the apostles were not persecuted at this point though all of them would suffer for Christ. Likely because of Gamaliel's words to the Pharisees especially, but to the Sanhedrin overall, because Gamaliel was a Pharisee. In chapter 5, just to review it, when they were looking to persecute the apostles, Peter and John, the leadership, Gamaliel says, Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Well, they did. They, I think they kept that in mind and left the apostles alone, fearing fighting God, respecting the words of Gamaliel. But Gamaliel didn't say not mess with the sheep. We can bother them, and that's what they're doing. Now, some of the other Christians will remain in Jerusalem, too. We'll, we'll review this as we move on. Verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. I believe these were dedicated non-Christian Jews, dedicated to Yahweh and Judaism, as they understood. They respected, even loved Stephen, that kind of a personality. It speaks very highly of him as we considered his appointment to one of the servants in the church, a man full of grace and truth, full of the Spirit. Well, even those who had not yet come to Christ admired this man. The Christians, uh, certainly they would have agonized over the death of this man who sealed his loyalty to Christ with his blood. He'll not be the last, but he is the first in the church to suffer persecution after Pentecost. Of course, Christ always is first amongst all first fruits. They recognize that Stephen died without dishonoring Yahweh while telling the truth about his ancestors and those who murdered him. And it turned out to be true. Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they have killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become betrayers and murderers. And so they killed Stephen too. They added to the list. And they never thanked him for pointing it out. They proved his point with his blood and made great lamentation over him. Again, non-Christians who may not have really understood that at the moment Stephen was in paradise. He was in heaven. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight 
of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, that's true. I think largely it's true because of those left behind that have to grieve through it all. It means something to God. Of course the church grieved for the loss of their son and his gallant death. But they were busy, very busy. The soul of Stephen, his spirit, instantly went to Christ. Look at verse 55 of chapter 7. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This, this just shoots down the silly notions of soul sleep. Christ was not welcoming Stephen into, he, in, into heaven just to put him to bed. Okay, now that you're here, you're going to have to sleep for a while. It's a, it's a, it's a kooky doctrine from a kooky people. So if you hear, get wind of it, just reject it. The scripture refutes it. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul speaking about, you know, I'd like to leave this life and just go to be with Christ, but I got work here to do. And so he writes, for I am hard pressed, and remember he's writing from jail for Christ, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. They take Stephen's body to the grave. That's what it tells us here in verse 2. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, my people don't die. They come to me. And Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, the body, you know, I don't care where you bury me. As you do anything with that, I'm done with that tent. I'm with Christ. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so when the Christian dies, heaven, just like that. That transition is instant. And we believe that by faith. And that faith is built on logic and reason and the Spirit of God. So the spirit and the soul of the believer go to be with Christ at the time of death. The dead are not in an unconscious state. They are aware of what's going on. They are entirely aware. They may leave this world in an unconscious state, but the minute they enter eternity, they are aware of what's going on. They feel it. The soul of an unbeliever does not go to Christ. They, too, are not in an unconscious state. They are aware of their doom. And death is for real. And that's why we preach the gospel. And if it were not for real, who needs the gospel? If there were no consequences, who needs the good news? It would all be good news. But these things, they remain, whether a person receives them or not. And it is up to the believer to try to live a life in such a way that we do not damage our opportunities to share Christ. Because who wants to hear from a Christian if that Christian has a reputation of being a liar or mean-spirited, or petty, or a host of other vices that we are all susceptible to. In verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, Luke is writing about 25, 30 years after the events that we're reading took place, with the benefit of knowing Saul's destiny. So as he writes, he knows Saul might be in the room with him. 
at the time he's writing, because we know Luke was spent time with Saul, would go away, would come back, would go away, would get that into the book of Acts with the pronouns changed from they went to, we went to, and we, we know that he's probably out researching his writings. In, in his, the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that he did, did extensive research to bring the Gospel story to his readers. And so uh, this is significant when you consider that Paul was a Cilician, uh, would have been put uh, from Cilicia, would have put him with the freedmen in that synagogue, hearing Stephen uh, dismantle their religious errors. Uh, then he was at the stoning of Stephen, holding the clothing. He, he wreaks havoc on the church. When we get to chapter 9, he is still breathing threats of violence against the church. He's still at it. He's gone mad with this hatred for Christianity. And so he makes havoc of the church because Stephen, again, took apart leg by leg Paul's religious arrogance, and he did it with truth, and he did it with their scripture. Acts chapter 9, verse 13. This is when God sends uh, Ananias to Paul, uh, and he didn't want to go. He says, man, it's bad news. God says to Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. He's on the street called Straight, and and Ananias was, the street might be straight, but he's not straight. And so he protests to God and answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Well, he's talking about the things we're reading about. What, what a real moment. Here's Ananias doing, who knows what he is doing. He's probably out in the backyard juggling. That's what we all do when we're out in the backyard. And then, and then, yeah, I know you get that picture of him, right? And then God says, I want you to go and anoint Saul. And he's in dialogue with God. I, I can see him telling the story to Luke, to telling it to other Christians. The Lord, I, I knew it was the Lord. And I didn't want to go, so I told him. And the Lord said, nonetheless, go. And he, and he went. Clear as a bell, Christianity is different from Judaism and irreconcilable. We've moved on. They've stayed back. Christianity phased Judaism out because the Messianic prophecies concerning the Messiah, a great portion of them, have been fulfilled, which develops the faith. We retain the moral law. We retain the revelations about God's person, when Abraham says to God, shall not the God of the universe do right? We keep that. That's true. That's New Testament theology too. God always does right. But we leave behind the husk, the ritual. The fruit has come out the husk and we put the husk away and we move forward in the strength of the fruit of God's work. God's witness, Stephen, Stephen was God's witness uh, Saul witnessed that stoning of this Stephen and it haunted him. He shows up with this rage. Saul is being poked. His conscience is being poked and poked and poked and he is provoked in this. And that's why Jesus will ask him the question, isn't it hard to kick against the goads? The goads are those things that poke the animal into place. And he's like, yeah. Entering every house and dragging off men and women committing to prison. This is what the Christians were fleeing. This is what Saul was doing as the chief prosecutor. 
And this is why they were fleeing Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria, all the way up to Antioch. It's just spread all over the place. Paul later admits that he was an antichrist. Some of you can admit that too. You were once against Christ. Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my former conduct. Yeah, because it was big news. In Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Yes, yeah, Satan thought he could pull this off. Because remember, Satan is insane. There's no, you don't reason with him but, uh, can, what he, his works, but so far. He still thinks he can harm God. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 3 that he persecuted the church. He admits it right out. In Acts 22, he says he imprisoned them unto death. Stephen would have been part of those unto the death. In Acts 22, he also tells us that he beat the saints or had them beaten. In Acts 26, he says he compelled them to blaspheme, to renounce Christ. To say Jesus is not the Messiah. In Galatians 3, as we just read, he said he persecuted them beyond measure to destroy them. And then to Timothy, he writes that he was an ignorant blasphemer. That's a brief overview of the damage he was inflicting in a short period of time. And God let it run. Anyone who claims that they have committed too much sin to be forgiven should stop such gibberish about God before the throne of God. If men like Moses and David and Saul of Tarsus can be forgiven, then anybody can be forgiven. And it is a cop-out to say, well, I've done so much work. No, you're just trying to, to weasel out of something that you know is made available to you. It is a sin to disagree that Christ forgives sins. It is a sin to say, no, he does not do it. Romans chapter 7, Paul also writes about his, himself, his ongoing self. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Well, John Newton, that's where he would pick up amazing grace. It saved a wretch like me. It's biblical. The world doesn't like this because they're insecure about their sin. We are too, but in a different way. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who delivers from sin. And then he writes in the very next verse, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we see that acted out in the life of Saul. Here he is persecuting the church. He gets saved. There is now therefore no condemnation on him. A wretch can be saved. Heaven will be filled with one-time wretches who are wretches no more or who are wretched no more. Truly, the wretched of the earth are sinners, but God makes a way of escape. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You would think that they would be irritated by that. Where's God? I gave my life to Christ, and now this is what I get? I'm not preaching this. I'm not going to invite others to suffer with me. Maybe, maybe God has let you down in your eyes, and you're a little angry with him, or a lot of angry with him. 
and you sort of like, I'm not serving. I'm not doing this. I'm not reading. I'm not. And you're just sort of, you know, flying as, you know, low as you can beneath the radar of service, hoping to get away with it. You're hurting yourself. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face, as the saying goes. This word here for preaching in verse 4 is where we get our English word evangelism. So he's telling the good news. Now Gamaliel had predicted, he said, you know, these guys, these Christians, they're going to go the way, if it's not God, they're going to go the way of all these other upstarts. You know, the, they were, the upstarts died and then the followers were dispersed. Well, uh, these, their leader was crucified and risen again. They're persecuted. They are dispersed. They are scattered, but they're still serving. Church is scattered, but instead of dying out, it will flourish. Persecution has a way of filtering out those who are not true believers but make believers, or those who just uh, give in to the persecution and not to Christ. Verse 5 Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And so as the other Christians were going out to different places, escaping Jerusalem and preaching Christ, Philip does too. But now we're focused on Philip because he's a bit of a dynamo. Uh, You can even say he's got spiritual dynamite with him as he moves forward. Were it not for the persecution in Jerusalem, Philip would not be here preaching the word in this region of Israel where this culture and these people are looked down upon and aren't really worth saving in the eyes of Judaism, even though the law, the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament sent the Jewish people to be a light to the Gentiles. It never got traction, not until the New Testament comes along. And even then it's a struggle. It was not an easy transition. Paul doesn't just become an apostle and says, I'm going to start reaching Gentiles, and the church in Jerusalem is going to back me. It almost seems like at times James did whatever he can to kind of slow Paul down. Get him out of Jerusalem. Send some people up to investigate what he's doing. And it's just, uh, you know, this, this very real fight. The, the Samaritans, they were half-breeds. This resulted from the intermarriages with the Gentiles. They lived in the northern part of Israel, and the armies, the invading armies of Gentiles, almost always came from the north. Well, there were the Egyptians and the Ethiopians to the south, of course, but mainly they they would come from the north, Israel being a land bridge to Africa, northern Africa. And you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 26, just tells us what the Assyrians were doing. The Assyrians came from the north, and They would uh, relocate the Jews and they would uh, put in uh, the promised land uh, other peoples who they had conquered. Uh, They were Gentiles. And out of that was this half-caste people, Jew-Gentile. And then they rejected the scripture except for the first five books. They had their own version of the book of Joshua and they had many other traditions and things like that. And as a result... The Hebrews, the, the Jewish people who were not half-caste or mixed-breed, um, uh, they rejected them. The day came, and this is in the story of the book of Ezra, when the Jews were 
coming back to Israel from their captivity in Babylon. There wasn't a lot of them. Many of them said, you know what, we'll stay here in Babylon, work, uh, you know, the economy is good. And there were just very few, relatively very few, that did come back to the promised land. And when they did, they, one of the first works they undertook was to rebuild their temple. Well, the Samaritans, the, this mixed breed of, of people, they said, we want to help build Yahweh's temple. And they said, no, you can't do this. You're not part of this faith. You've got some sort of leaven thing going on. We want no parts of it. And they were right for doing that. Consequently, animosity continued between these two, even into the days of Christ and the church. So when we look at John chapter 4, and it says that Jesus must needs go to Samaria, he, had, he knew he was going to reach people there. And he, can, he has this encounter with the woman at the well. And everybody, everybody comes out. Because one thing about that woman, she was no liar. She may have been, um, she just had a bunch of, broken romances in her life but she wasn't a liar where if she were the whole town would not have come out at her word that i spoke to a prophet that told me everything about myself in fact he embarrassed me (laughs) he didn't say that part but that's what happened so this area of samaria that jesus went to philip you know probably well aware of the story and this is before the gospel of john was written but they would have had the story from the life of Christ being alive at that time. And now the message is for the first time really being proclaimed outside of Jerusalem and Judea into what others would have, Saul would have considered this enemy territory. And yet he's going to be the champion preaching to Gentiles. And so this is a further step in the transition from a Jewish church to a Christian church. It's not a transition from a Jewish church to a Gentile church. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. There is no longer Jew, nor Greek, Scythian, or that. They're just with Christians. It's interesting that the world doesn't say, well, how did it all get divided into one people versus everybody else? Shouldn't that alert everyone... Shouldn't that, you know, cause everyone to think, how did this happen? What's going on? Why is it the Jewish people against the world? Because of Satan attacking God and God singling out his people. And the reason why Satan is attacking the Jewish people is because he wants to attack the prophecies and the promises and the work of God. He still thinks he can win because he's insane. As, as we would register, uh, insanity. Well, uh, the second word that's used here to preach in verse 5 is caruso in the Greek, not the opera singer, but to herald, to proclaim. It's an important word, the kerugma. The it is an important word for us to proclaim the gospel, not to debate it, not to ask permission of people to like it, but to proclaim it. And that's what he's doing. He's going up and he's saying, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He was crucified, returned to heaven, but left his church here. He is alive right now. And anything you hear me saying or see me doing is because of him, his active participation. And they believed it. They, they believed it and embraced it. And so he invites them to come. 
to this Jesus Christ. So walls are being broken down. This is not little. This, this is cultural and racial, and this is heavy duty. When Paul says in the Ephesian letter that the, 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 walls of the, the walls are being broken down, he's talking about we're reaching people that are not just the covenant people of Israel. We are reaching the world, and there are walls up, and they are fortified. They are guarded and the people on those walls are armed. And they will hurt you if you try to bring the gospel message at the wrong time uh, without God. They'll hurt you even if God sends you. And that's what we saw in Stephen. Stephen was up against that wall. So the Jews who viewed these Samaritans as impure, the gospel doesn't see it that way. There's no room in the gospel for racism. There's none in the Old Testament. Well, that's the whole story of Jonah. There's no room for this. That's what God was telling Jonah. I want to reach a people. What do you care about who they are? Your, your focus is on what I'm telling you to do. It's a great story, the, the book of Jonah. And uh, I think when we read the story of Jonah to our children or for ourselves, de-emphasize the fish. Uh, the emphasis is, is on the prophet and his mission under the authority of God. It's all about God, but... It has everything to do with people and the wrong things that, that go with us because of sin and the curse. Race, religion, culture, and history are being overruled by the gospel here under the uh, ministry of Philip, who proved himself faithful in the little things, is now promoted. God has now got him as an evangelist, one who goes around... Uh, leading people to Christ because God has found what he needs in that person, the ingredients to be successful at doing this. I think all Christians can lead someone to Christ, but those with that gift lead a lot of people to Christ. They just have it. Same with Bible teaching. Not everybody can be a teacher of the Bible uh, to assemblies, but everyone can teach the Bible. Uh, this is... Um, something that Satan likes to muddle up. Our feelings are not the compass that Jesus sails by. Jesus doesn't say, how do you feel, Jonah, about the Ninevites? He gave him a command. And the will of God, that is our compass. That's where we find which direction to go in. And this is uh, unfortunate that all of us are susceptible to... <laughs> Letting our feelings get the upper hand, but we can beat that back. It just hurts to do it, but it's worth it. It's the consequences of allowing your feelings to run the ship are worse. I would say I would go so far to say most of the problems in in the church, local and globally speaking, come from feelings in professed believers. Uh, that, you don't have to be loyal if you go by your feelings. Uh, you know, who needs loyalty if I feel I don't like this? Again, loyal to Christ first, always. That dictates who we're going to be loyal to in the service amongst men. Paul had such men as Silas, as Titus, as Timothy, as Epaphroditus. As, as, uh, there's so many men and women, Phoebe and, and uh, Lydia. Uh, you know, so many were loyal to him. Because they saw him loyal to God. That's what works. It, it's a failure when it doesn't work. When that breaks down. 
This man, Philip, will cover over 150 miles, Jerusalem to Samaria, Samaria to Gaza, Gaza to Azotus, Azotus to Caesarea. He's moving around, and we'll hear more of him through this chapter because it gets more exciting when we come across Simon the Magician because that's what he was. He was a magician. And, and then we'll get to him later on when Saul goes to, to visit him at his home in Caesarea. Verse, eight, verse 6, sorry. And the multitude with one accord he, uh, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Just from the bottom up, the, the paralyzed and lame and healed does not insist that they were demon-possessed, uh, but others were. But they could have, some of them could have been, but there's, there's no, you certainly can be paralyzed or lame without the use of the help of demons. Uh, but here he is, the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Not by debate, but by proclaiming, by preaching, by letting the Holy Spirit take it further. How did the Holy Spirit take it further? Well, in this case, the signs and wonders he used as helpmates to the preaching of the word, to the preaching of truth. Jesus, it says of Jesus, because miracles aren't enough. You can do signs and wonders. They had Simon doing his tricks there. They thought they were signs and wonders, but they were sleight of hand. But no one came to Christ or, or to God through this. They said, oh, he has the power of God, but it didn't do anything more for them. Jesus, it says of Jesus, but although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. We don't need signs and wonders to save souls in this age of the church. We need the truth, and the truth from the word. Pharaoh saw and felt the miraculous powers. He did not only witness it with his eyes, he felt it. When that darkness hit the land, I mean, there was no solution. And they just suffered through that darkness. And it's been said of the ancient people that one of their great fears was darkness. And, you know, just... Uh, we may take for granted the electricity that we have. Anyway, uh, back to the Pharaoh. He remained adamant in spite of the signs and wonders and grew violent. He pursued the people, well, you know, trying to catch them. As a, the sea. You'd think he would have you know, looked at the sea, parted, and say, Whoa, I think we'll stop right here. I think I'm going to let Yahweh be my God now. You'd think he would do that. But no, in rage, he just pursued forward because he was filled with Satan. Jesus was crucified and buried, risen and alive. He preaches this. That, that's what they latched on to. And also that Christ retains the power. Even though he has ascended to heaven, he still works. Only now he uses the hands of faithful believers, his disciples. The believer does not use God's power. God's power uses the believer. This has always been, and it always will be. Um, what do you have that you have not been given? The, the, you know, Christ says through his, his servants, his apostle Paul. And so in the days of the first Christians, there was indeed unusual spiritual activity that was brought out into the light. 
Maybe there's as much now, it's just not brought out as it was in the days of the first Christians and, of course, Christ. But this is a transition period from the work of the Old Testament that God had done to the work in the New Testament that God was developing and wanting to do. The New Testament era is here, and it is no era. All right. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Because, yeah, by faith, sight unseen. Christians preaching the Gospel, loving Christ, dying at the stake without ever seeing Christ. That's a miracle. Uh, Stephen probably saw and, and even sat under the teachings of Christ. If he didn't, others did. We can understand him dying, the death that he died. But what about those that would come later that never met Christ, never saw his face, never benefited from his tones and his gestures, never saw the multitudes healed, and yet they still believe and still go to their grave with the same authority and gallantry that Stephen did, that James would. That is a great miracle, I think, that Jesus has in mind, where he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Miracles are not widespread now, not as they were in the Scripture, but... They will ramp up again during the Great Tribulation period. Just an easy one. You have 144,000 Jewish people become evangelists during the Great Tribulation period, and they can't be touched. <laughs> they have this you know, shield about them. You tell me if that's a miracle or not. While, while others are being arrested and beheaded for Christ, they can't be touched. So, the age of the miraculous events will return. Verse 8, And there was great joy in that city. Well, you know, when I entered into ministry, my pastor, Chuck Smith, would say that when the Word of God is preached, ministry will happen. Well, of course, hearing that, I'm thinking it's just going to be wonderful. (laughs) This is going to be painless. I never would have, if you asked me, do you think it's going to be painless? I would have said, no, of course not. But, I, you know, the internal you know, stuff that really is the heavier thing. But it is still true. The word of God is preached, that's what we're seeing here, and ministry is happening. Even in the face of resistance. One great Bible teacher said, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. You who pull duty here in church, remember that. The days you feel like you don't want to serve, the days that uh, you're in a foul mood with something going on in your life, uh, just uh, maybe you don't like a decision that was made, a policy that was set, remember that. Remember loyalty. Loyalty shines in the darkness when the pressure's on. These first Christians, what attracts us about them is their loyalty to Christ. Persecuted, but preaching. That's loyalty. 
The reason why is, the reason why, and the reason why great joy was in that city is because eternity matters, and the individuals that recognize that are the ones with the joy. The ones that say, I believe his reward is with him, and I will see him, and I will be with him. There is a place for me in heaven. My name is at the table, and I'm going to be there by faith. That is miraculous. And so these folks here, great joy was in that city because an eternal matter was established, and they knew it. So when David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see why the Lord was his shepherd? Because eternity was taken care of. That when David died, he did not enter death with doubt. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts in praise. Well, of course, that has first to do with the temple on earth or the worship place of earth, but its grandest meaning applies to the house of God in heaven, which the temple on earth was modeled after. And so now I mentioned that Simon, he's a magician, and with all his tricks and all of his illusions, he could not bring great joy. The gospel brought the great joy. What is that greatness part? What is so great about it? It is not emotional. It's spiritual. It's by faith. I know what things are settled. When I became a Christian, I was so sure instantly of how things were going to turn out now. I now could know, all right, there is, I, there is a God and his name is Jesus Christ. And there is a heaven for me. And there is the Trinity. All these things just came into place. And it was happening for them too. Satan cannot bring great joy. He can bring carnal pleasures that is not great joy because it doesn't last. Sorcery cannot meaningfully impact the lives of people for God. And so the writer of Hebrews talking about Moses, how he turned down the passing pleasures of sin. So the passing pleasures of sin versus the great joy of the Lord. And the reason why many of us don't have joy is because we begin to lose sight of eternal things. We get focused on things right here in front of me, as though this were all there were. And that can be true from your married life to uh, your, your career, uh, to certainly ministry, speaking for myself, uh, uh, just uh, you have, we have ambitions. There are things that we want. And we don't take too well that when those ambitions are redirected or canceled. So I close with this verse from Luke's gospel. Jesus speaking, and he's speaking about eternal things. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, Luke 10, verse 20, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's what it always comes back to, the soul of man. Where is it going to go? May God give us a chance to be part of that process to put people in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, such a small paragraph or two, but it captures a time in the lives of 
your people, when they were suffering some nasty things, and yet they loved on you nonetheless, they did not depart, they did not become apostate, they doubled down, they ramped up their Christianity, and turned on Satan, and in that persecution they preached Jesus Christ. We want that. We who believe, we want to lose none of that. We want to be able to preach Jesus Christ, whether there's persecution or not. Because there's always lost souls. There are always those to be saved. Whether in family or out, they are there. And may we not become so sidetracked by our own ambitions and struggles that we forget eternity, that this is about getting to heaven. If you've been listening and the Spirit of God has been ministering to you, but you've never opened your heart to God, you have a chance now. You have a chance to come to the Lord and have your sins, the penalty of your sins, just wiped away because of what Christ suffered and died in your place, in the place of sinners. If you would like Jesus Christ to be your Savior, if you would like to be one of the people of God, then you got to come. It's got to be deliberate. He won't force you. You make this prayer in earnest, you will be his. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. No one else is good enough and great enough to die for me to take my sin away but you and And no one else is great enough and good enough to be Lord God over my life. So I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask you to forgive me and to have me be one of your own from this day forward. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they never be ashamed of it. And may out the very starting gate of their confession, they make it known that they've given their heart to Christ. These things we pray and commit into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.